This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some may find distressing. So as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018 is based on my five-star rated guided walk and features more than 300 untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, old cases through a fresh pair of ears and classic cases with a twist, all researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favourite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening. And stay safe. At around 11 o'clock in the morning, on Sunday the 11th of September 1983, a man walked into an auto spares store in the little Hertfordshire town of Royston. He was white, between the ages of 25 and 35, of medium height with straight light brown hair covering part of his ears. He wore a brown, long-sleeved sweater and a mustard-coloured shirt. Ben Davies, the shop's owner, would see nothing to draw his attention to the man, who was just one of around 20 reported customers that day who were looking to buy number plates. Don Howden, who worked at CB's Cars next door to the auto spares, recalled to the papers that this man came in to me He asked me whether we made plates. I said, no, we don't, but the shop next door does. I didn't know the chap. I do know most people in Royston. There is no reason on God's earth why the man should have number plates made of the car exactly the same. Of course, at the time, neither Brian nor Don understood the importance of this man, who came into the stores at around 11am to ask for plates to be made up and said he didn't mind what kind just as long as they bore the registration KMR769X. Ben Davies quickly filled in an order form, listed the registration, and made the plates up in perspex. The whole transaction took hardly any time, and the man was soon out of the door and forgotten, until Thursday of the following week, when something made Ben Davies look again at the order form and realise the connection It had been all over the news, after all, ever since that Sunday, the 11th of September. The main headlines all telling of the body of a woman found dead in a ditch near a narrow lay-by on the A1, beaten and dumped in heavy rains about 20 miles away from the Royston auto spares. Her car, only found that Wednesday, 60 miles away from the lay-by in which she was killed, parked in Camden, a northwest borough of London. The vehicle had sat undiscovered since Sunday, And only after it was recognised did Ben Davies make the connection. Those number plates, KMR769X, 
Those plates belong to that car. An Alfa Romeo Alfetta, the car of the murdered woman, Janice Weston, a 36-year-old solicitor from Notting Hill in London. The car in which blood smears had been found, as if someone, perhaps a man in a brown sweater and a mustard-coloured shirt, had wiped condensation from the windscreen, his hands still red with blood. Whoever he was, whether or not he was her killer, that man had for some inexplicable reason entered Ben's Autospares store at 11 in the morning, two hours after the body of Janice Weston had been discovered, and bought plates the same as hers, made up in whatever material the shopkeeper had wanted. It didn't seem to matter to him. But do the plates matter at all? They weren't on the car when he was found, so what purpose were they meant to play? This is just one of the many mysteries surrounding the 35-year-old unsolved murder of Janice Weston. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast. Janice Carroll Wright was born on the 13th of April 1947, and in 1971 she graduated with a first-class honours degree in law from Manchester University. She then returned to her hometown of London and began working as a legal advisor in the law firm Herbert Oppenheimer, Nathan and Van Dyke. It was while she worked at Oppenheimer's that she met wealthy banker and chairman of the Met Toy Toy Company, Heinz Eisner, a widower almost 40 years her senior, Heinz was undeterred in his quest to win Janice's affections, taking her out to dinners and to the opera. In 1976, he even asked her to marry him, and she gently turned him down, though the two remained close friends until his death just a year later. In his will, Heinz left the then 29-year-old Janice almost £185,000 in shares, cash and art. Her inheritance wasn't without problems, however, and Mr Eisner's family contested the amount. So eventually Janice instead received about £140,000, which is still over half a million in today's money. By the time of her murder, six years after the death of Heinz Eisner, Janice had trebled her inheritance with shrewd speculation on the property market and was working as a solicitor for the firm Charles Russell & Company, where she was engaged in the commercial side of the practice, as well as being in the process of writing a book on data protection. She had become a partner in the firm in February of 1982, and after she was killed, a spokesman for the company said, All the partners had the greatest respect for her ability, and will feel the loss acutely, both as a friend and professional colleague who made a great contribution to the working of a happy office, which is now desolate. As well as her seemingly successful career, in June of 1982, Janice got married for the first time to property dealer 39-year-old Anthony Reginald Weston, once divorced and a father to two children. To all outwards appearances, the Westons lived a wealthy and happy life. They owned a basement flat in London's Notting Hill, 
and had recently purchased Clopton Manor, a large country house in the small village of Clopton in the county of Northamptonshire, which at the time of Janice's death they were in the process of having renovated into flats. They took holidays in France, one just before her death at the start of September 1983, and at the time that his wife was murdered, Tony had returned to Europe to stay for the weekend in a hotel in Paris while he oversaw the purchasing of a countryside chateau. They were seemingly happy, wealthy, and in love. And so 39 days after their wedding, Janice changed her will to leave the income from her estate to Tony in the event of her death. When it did arrive, just a year later, Tony was in Paris for the whole weekend and had an airtight alibi. Which is where we come to the second mystery surrounding her murder. Why was it that on the 16th of December 1983, the police held Tony Weston for 55 hours while they questioned him on his wife's death. case like this one, it's difficult to know where to begin outlining events. There's a lot of facts and locations, a lot of strange occurrences, and little bits and pieces that could be nothing, or that could have cracked the case wide open if only the right theory had been explored, if only the disparate evidence could be pieced together. I have pages on pages of notes and ideas, and at the top are keywords underlined. Number plates, Unfinished Meal, Clopton, Spare Tire. Before I get into Anthony Weston, or any other theories and suspects, I need to talk to you about the timeline of Janice's murder, and I need to try and fit all of these little pieces into that timeline. Bear with me here, there's a lot of small facts that need to be covered. We'll start the weekend before Janice's murder, the weekend of the 3rd and the 4th of September 1983, when Janice and Tony got a flat tyre while visiting their countryside retreat, Clopton Manor, the house in Northamptonshire that they were in the process of converting. Despite its stately-sounding name, Clopton Manor wasn't yet equipped for a luxury stay. The conversion works meant that Janice and Tony's part was mostly unfurnished, with not even sheets on the bed, only sleeping bags. As with so many of the facts in this case, that may or may not be important. What is important, though, is that Janice and Tony replaced the flat tyre on their car with the spare they carried in the boot, and that during the next week, Tony took the other tyre to a London garage to be repaired. The following weekend, the 10th and 11th of September 1983, the weekend of Janice's murder, Tony departed for France, and Janice took the opportunity to go into work at the Lincoln's Inn offices of Charles Russell and Company on Saturday the 10th. I don't know when exactly she picked up the tyre, which had by then been fixed, but it seems that she called the garage in the morning, and that she left work at around 4.30 in the afternoon, probably picking up the tyre before returning home to hers and Tony's basement flat on Addison Avenue. Without stopping to collect the tyre, it's about seven miles away, and takes 35 minutes in traffic to complete the journey. Janice's leaving work is the last definite act that I can pinpoint in the timeline of her final movements. From here, everything becomes much less defined. (laughs) 
It's a boiling hot day at the start of July 2018, when my sometime research assistant Gemma and I pull up on Addison Avenue, a wide, leafy and rich-looking quiet street in London's Notting Hill. We've left our drive until later in the day, but the temperature in Gemma's van is reading 33 degrees, and we're uncomfortable in the humid city air, sweating in our seats and desperate to no longer be stuck in London traffic. It's a Sunday, about seven in the evening, and we've driven from Suffolk to London, and then the short distance between Lincoln's Inn, where Janice worked, and her basement flat home. We're glad to be able to get out of the van and stand in the street while I take some Polaroids and observe our surroundings. The flat itself is part of a much larger building, painted white, with long, thin, rectangular windows. The whole road looks affluent, though theirs isn't the nicest of the buildings in the street. We've seen photographs from the time, and know that the area doesn't look much different now to how it did when Janice was killed. It's a wide road, with plenty of spaces for parked cars. On the evening of Saturday the 10th of September, 1983, Janice returned home to Addison Avenue sometime after five o'clock. Police believe this to be the case, because when they searched the couple's home, they found that on the kitchen table were the remains of a light meal, grapes peeled tomatoes and a glass of white wine. To them, it appeared as if while eating, Janice had suddenly left home in a hurry. According to her family, it was out of character for her to have not cleared up her food before leaving the house. Stranger still was that she appeared to have taken an overnight bag with her, and her purse, but left behind her handbag. Again, Janice's family and friends agreed that this was unusual. I want to stress here how difficult it is to get a handle on the timeline of Janice's last movements, or the reasons for her actions. After she's returned home and eaten some of a small meal, the next thing we know for sure is that by around midnight, or maybe a little bit later, for some reason Janice and her car, the Alfa Romeo Alfetta, registration number KMR769X, are in a narrow lay-by on the A1 in Cambridgeshire, between Buckton and the Brampton Hut roundabout. It's a two-mile stretch of the A1 between Buckton and Brampton, 70 miles away from Janice's home on Addison Avenue. That warm evening in July 2018, Gemma and I drive the route from Addison Avenue to the Brampton Hut roundabout. The sun is setting pink on the horizon as we drive the last part of Janice's journey, up a newly improved section of the A1. It's not all like that. Some of the road has been vastly altered, but other parts are similar to Janice's route that night of September the 10th. The lay-by where her body was discovered no longer exists. That two-mile section of road has been widened, and even now, works are going on by the side. I've seen photographs and a couple of little videos from that time, and what now is a vast and well-lit section of dual carriageway looked very different in 1983. Thinner and darker, with vast flat fields and unkept ditches, mounds and hedgerows on either side. It would have been a lonely stretch for a woman, late at night, to have had to stop on. Reports suggest that her car was seen at around 12.15am on Sunday the 11th, 
by a motorist looking to pull over but not finding space enough to do so, with Janice's Alpha already parked in the small lay-by. He didn't see her, but he did claim to see a man between the ages of 38 and 45, medium build and somewhere between 5 foot 9 and 6 foot, standing by the car with the boot and bonnet open. It was the only vehicle in the lay-by, and reportedly seen through heavy rain. So unclear is the timeline that at the inquest, Home Office pathologist Dr Ian Hill could only say that she had been killed somewhere between 9pm and 2am the following morning, and that it was probable that her death had occurred in the lay-by, caused by a fractured skull, the result of blows to her head by a blunt instrument, probably her own car jack. She had injuries to her arm, which suggested she had put up some kind of fight, and Superintendent Len Bradley said that her head lacerations were consistent with a murderer who had lost his temper or had gone berserk. Her watch, a gold Omega bracelet worth £350, was found on her wrist. The time stopped at 1.29am. One of the reasons that I like to drive the routes and visit the locations of these murders and disappearances is that sometimes, when you look at a map, it's difficult to understand the geography of an area. Without driving the A1 and then turning off at the Brampton Hut roundabout to go to Clopton Manor, I'd never have understood how close that lay-by was to the turn-off for the Western's countryside home. It's a good 15 minutes drive away, but the next exit offered the A1, about a minute from where her body was found. Something that has never been established by police is whether or not it was coincidence that she was found so close to that turn-off. Clopton is a small, rich-looking village just over the Northamptonshire border. It's isolated, and you have to leave the main roads to travel on single tracks until you reach it. If you knew where you were heading, and your intention was murder, there are much more isolated places between the A1 and Clopton to commit such a horrific act. Despite the proximity of the two locations, I find it difficult to understand why her murder would have been committed on a thin lay-by next to the side of a well-frequented road, if the murderer knew of the existence of Clopton Manor, and the act was pre-planned. It was at nine o'clock of that morning, Sunday the 11th of September, that Janice's body, her head injuries instantly apparent, still fully dressed in jeans, a thick wool gatherer's original sweater with a sheep and lamb motif, and black or dark blue plimpsoles with white soles, soaking wet from the overnight downpour, was discovered by a racing cyclist, David Hurst, and his wife in a ditch by the side of that lay-by on the A1. Her car was nowhere to be seen, and neither was her purse or overnight bag. The Cambridgeshire Police, headed by Detective Chief Superintendent Lem Bradley, did make a find close by, however. Tossed in a nearby field was her car jack, bearing traces of blood and hair. Because of her lack of identification, the fact that it was a Sunday so there was no one to report her missing from work, and that her husband Tony was out of the country... It took until Monday afternoon for her body to be positively identified. 
By then, Tony, still in France, had become alarmed when he could not contact Janice by telephone. And her work had informed her sister, who lived in nearby Hertfordshire, and had heard news of the woman's body found by the side of the A1. Her sister's worried husband called the Cambridgeshire police, who immediately brought the couple into their incident room, and later, they were the ones to identify Janice's body. Despite the identification, it took three more days of police searches and newspaper appeals to find her car, which was not reported until Wednesday the 14th, when it was spotted on Redhill Street in North London, which sits close to the borough of Camden and Regent's Park, five miles away from Janice's home on Addison Avenue, and almost 70 miles from the lay-by where Janice's body was discovered. Further investigation found a witness who stated that she had seen a man leaving the parked car on Sunday the 11th at around 12.30pm, three and a half hours after the discovery of Janice's body, and an hour and a half after the man in the Royston auto spares had purchased those perspect number plates bearing the registration of Janice's car. The man this witness had seen was described as around five foot four in height, scruffy looking with dirty grey trousers and jacket, and scruffy hair. Despite the lack of similarities between this man, the one spotted by the side of the A1 with Janice's car, or the man in the Royston auto spares, the police stated that they believed all the brief witness sightings to be of the same person. Regardless of whether or not this was accurate, on the car windscreen was a parking ticket made out on Monday afternoon, confirming that the Alpha had been parked in that spot for at least the past couple of days. After leaving Janice's home on Addison Avenue, Gemma and I drove to Redhill Street. It's innocuous, some nice yellow brick buildings on one side, which look like newly converted residential properties, and flat red brick offices on the other. The street is a few roads away, but parallel to Regent's Park. While parts are run down and grimy, on the whole it's a pleasant enough, quiet area, and as was the case in 1983, it's difficult to tell if there is a reason why Redhill Street would have been chosen as the place to dump Janice's car. When the Alpha was found and police searched the vehicle, they discovered Janice's overnight bag and a partially drunk, screw-top bottle of white wine. Under the driver's seat was her purse, containing £37 in cash and her driver's licence. It appeared as if robbery was not the motive. Smeared on the window were those traces of blood, as if the killer had tried to wipe away condensation. But there were no fingerprints to be found, as if he had carefully wiped the car clean. As strange as this case already is, there were a couple more unusual things about Janice's car. The first was that the repaired tyre Janice had picked up from the garage was now on her car, the place where the mechanics had written Tony Weston's chalked address still visible inside. The second was that the spare tyre, the one that had been on the car as she'd left work in Lincoln's Inn on Saturday afternoon, was now nowhere to be found, not in the car and not in that lay-by where her body was discovered. Despite searches, it has never been recovered. As for the Perspex number plates, allegedly made up in that auto spares in Royston, those were nowhere to be seen, and again, they've never been found.
finally, I think I've covered all the important facts and the timeline of Janice's murder. And now that I have done, I'd imagine that you, like me, and like the Cambridgeshire Police, are confused as to how all these pieces could possibly fit together. On Friday the 16th of December 1983, Tony Weston sat in a small police interrogation room. Present was his lawyer, Mr Alex Nelson, and on the table in front of him were a series of photos laying face down and fanned out. If Detective Superintendent Leonard Bradley was to flip the photographs over, Tony would have seen crime scene images from Janice's murder. During this time, Tony was desperate to be released from police custody. He was being held in a cell with an open door, the light constantly on, and according to Dermot Wright, who applied for a writ of habeas corpus to compel Cambridge police to free Mr Weston, he had been at a low emotional ebb since Janice's murder that September. Mr Wright said, Obviously he is very depressed and emotional, so that they may, by holding him in the police station for most of the time in a cell, gain some kind of confession or admission to the murder from him. This wasn't the first time that police had called on Tony to answer their questions. But unlike the previous occasions, this time he'd been advised to remain silent. Timothy Barnes, representing the police, told the High Court... The police do not accept much of what Weston told them in previous interviews. Despite his appeal, Tony Weston remained in police custody for a total of 55 hours. I want to make it very clear now that Tony was never charged with a crime. He was released and eventually cleared of any involvement, and later stated to the newspapers, I walked into a London police station for a progress report. Nine hours later, TV news was showing me at St Neot's police station handcuffed, with a blanket over my head. To most people, that blanket means only one thing. No smoke without fire. He is guilty. It seems as if police suspicion of Tony arose from the fact that in the beginning he could only prove he had booked a hotel in Paris for three nights, but not that he'd stayed there. They also had credit card statements showing that someone had used his cards in Paris at 2.15 on the Saturday afternoon, and again at some point on the Sunday evening, but he could not prove it was him. The police felt that the inheritance that Tony was to receive in the result of Janice's death was motive enough for murder. But a couple came forward, stating that Tony had shown them around the chateau he was planning on buying near Tours on the Friday afternoon. Then, a clerk at the hotel in Paris in which he'd stayed also confirmed that he remembered handing Tony his room key at around 9pm on the Saturday night, right at the start of the window in which pathologist Dr Ian Hill said that Janice had been killed. Despite these witnesses, it was only after intensive questioning and months of investigation that Tony Weston was formally dropped as a suspect. So who does that leave? And what motive remains for Janice's murder? Normally, when I read about a case and start to piece together all the facts, 
thoughts, I can at least surmise a probable timeline of events based on the information available to me. There are sometimes gaps in my theories, but I can almost always make the pieces fit into some kind of coherent whole. Janice's case has been different. My ideas always fall down at the same hurdles. Why was the tyre replaced, and where did that spare disappear to? And what was the man in the Royston auto spares intending to do with the new number plates? I think it's reasonable to guess that Janice got home sometime after five o'clock that evening of the 10th of September and prepared a small meal. Her family stated that she would never usually drink and then drive, so we have to assume that she wasn't planning on leaving the house that evening when she poured herself a glass of white wine. Between there and past midnight in the A1 lay-by where Dr Ian Hill felt sure she had met her death is the crucial and elusive time. Was the man in the lay-by someone she knew or a stranger? Where did she encounter him? Was it at home in London, either a pre-planned meeting or spontaneous, or on the road, having made a spur-of-the-moment decision to go and visit Clopton Manor that rainy night? For a while, there was even talk that Tony had hired a hitman, but with all the evidence left behind, the strange events in Royston, and the brutal murder method, to me, it seems unlikely, unless the hired killer was highly skilled in misdirection. I'm not going to go through all the possible scenarios with you now, because there are just too many, but I will go through the one I think is most likely. This is by no means a definitive explanation, and if you've got your own opinion or any other information on Janice's case, then I'd love to hear about it, either by message or in the Outlines Podcast Facebook discussion group. I'm not 100% on this theory, or really even 50%, but everything just about fits, and that's the best I can do right now. I believe that after Janice returned home on Saturday the 10th of September and fixed herself wine and a light meal, she received a phone call or a visitor. There would be someone she knew, and perhaps someone she was close to, maybe her husband, home early from France, or a friend. That person persuaded her to come with them on the spur of the moment to Clopton Manor. As they neared the turn-off in the pouring rain, the spare tyre blew and they pulled into the lay-by to change it. Perhaps they had both been drinking, and tempers were fraught. There was an argument, and the person Janice was with got angry and out of hand and he killed her with the carjack. Hurriedly, he moved her to the ditch by the side of the road and finished changing the tyre, leaving the spare in the lay-by where, before the police found Janice, it was taken by an opportunistic passer-by. The murderer, who had not intended to kill anyone, now drove on to the remote Clopton Manor, or close by, and waited to sober up before driving back towards London, his only mode of transport still Janice's car. At around 9.30 on the Sunday morning, just as the first police vehicles arrived on the scene of the crime, he was on his way home, driving past the lay-by on the opposite side of the road, and panicked when he saw that she'd been found already. He took the next turn-off from the A1, planning to somehow switch cars, and not thinking, assumed he'd need identical number plates. He stopped in Royston, got the plates made, and then, his thoughts a little clearer, he realised they were useless, and drove the remaining journey back down to London, where he and the plates left the vehicle in Redhill Street and walked to the nearest tube stop to get the underground home. This is as close as I can get to a narrative that fits all the assumed facts. And as you will have noticed, it works on a lot of supposition. 
In truth, I can't help but feel like there must be some detail we don't know, or assumed fact that is actually false. On the 11th of September 2018, it will have been 35 years since Janice's murder on the side of the A1 in Cambridgeshire. With no new leads or suspects, her case remains resolutely cold. Despite this, and regardless of what happened that wet September's night, I think it's important to honour the memory of Janice Weston, a hard-working solicitor, a bright, successful, independent and seemingly happy woman whose life was curtailed in such a brutal fashion. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter with additional input from Gemma Frost. The music was written by Elias Hardy. My thanks goes out to Paul Sutherland of The True Crime Enthusiast who provided me with research from his extensive true crime collection. <laughs>